Welcome to the Magnificat Podcast. We are an international ministry to Catholic women. Throughout this series, we will pray together, share insights, and hear amazing testimonies, typically from women of faith who have been touched by the power of the Lord in their lives. This is a decidedly Catholic podcast, and in this series, you will hopefully learn more about the Catholic faith, God, the Blessed Mother, and much more. Thanks so much for joining us. Now let's listen to a great program. It is time to introduce our beloved Heather King. Heather is ex-lawyer, writer, contemplative, and Catholic convert who lives in Los Angeles. Heather is the author of many books and memoirs, which detail her journey through 20 years of alcoholism, surviving breast cancer, and a broken marriage, all which led to her conversion in 1996. Heather's story is one of passion and grit in the face of life's trials and disappointments. Her writing has been described as a riveting warts and all depiction of a lost soul found. Heather speaks nationwide and is a monthly contributor to the Magnificat publication. And this morning, I went over to her book table and asked her, Heather, which one is her favorite? And she looked up and said, my favorite. It's like asking me which child is my favorite. (laughs) With great joy, I present to you Heather King. Hi, good morning, everybody. Oh my God, that was such a long buildup. If you have to speak for an hour here, it was so beautiful. And thank you, thank you, Father. And I, before I forget, just thank you so much, all of these ladies who have been so on it and welcoming and detailed and kind and catered to my every need. And um, and my two lovely young ladies who are over at the. <laughs> Kaylee and Andy, did I get it right? <laughs> yes, over at the book table. Um, it's just been great. I got to stay here last night. I was on the 14th floor facing west. So I saw, I just opened the curtains and no one can see in up there. So, <laughs> but this gorgeous, gorgeous sunset. And I just thought, thank you, God. I mean, doesn't, that was after a two hour horrible gridlock drive from Los Angeles, but isn't that always the way? And then we get the beautiful sunset. And um, anyway, so it's just wonderful to be here. And I loved every, the music, all of it, the worship. Um, So prepares us. Um, Okay, wait, louder? Okay. Okay. Oh, there you go. Okay. So, um, and thank you. Thank you for the intro. Um, That was kind of the airbrushed version but <laughs> but yes um and i and i'm a speaker and a and a blogger and most of all a writer and um and and i'm with this huge group of women it's nice to see some guys here too i love men we love our priests but i've really been struck um i myself am uh single and childless and i've really been struck um especially in the last few years by the whole phenomenon of womanhood and how much Jesus loved women. And it started, 
this this kind of I, I want to write a book about womanhood. That may be my next book um, in this crazy culture, right? Um, of what it really is to be a woman and to be a fierce, tender, strong, loving woman. And the, the church has so formed me and um, and really I think allowed me allowed my womanhood to come to full flower. But anyway, so three or four years ago, I was on the coast of. Massachusetts. I come from New Hampshire, and I decided in my eternal quest to be holy, um, I was going to do the 30-day Ignatian exercises. So I went to this place called Eastern Point Retreat House in Gloucester, Mass. Beautiful, this big old kind of crumbling manor. And I'm doing the 30 days in silence, 30 days. And so at one point I was in the, they had these beautiful outdoor stations at the cross, and I was, um, I thought, oh, I'll do the stations. And I had this little, I'm a convert, so I'm always still catching up. I had a little laminated card because I didn't have them memorized. But I got to the eighth station. And the eighth station, as you all probably know, is Jesus speaks to the women. And it's just, it, we're the last people that he speaks to um, in the stations before he falls for the third time and is unstripped of his garments. And I was just, all of a sudden, I was just so moved and so overcome with how much he loved us and I think how much he depends on us to heal the wound between the sexes to just sort of carry on. So I just wanted to, um, and by the way, then two days later, I, I, I started feeling ill and I, found, I had the huge, the huge bullseye rash. I had Lyme disease, which I'm sure like a tick bit me while I was in the woods praying the Stations of the Cross. So I was like, <laughs> Thank you very much, Jesus. <laughs> but isn't that always the way too? The crown, the crown and the cross. And, and also, you know, I was somehow moved when I was sitting up here. I thought, oh, I'm a writer. Maybe I should read a little something that, uh, from one of my books as part of my talk, which I hadn't even planned on. So I went down and just grabbed my, my St. Therese of Lisieux book and sort of opened it at random. And here's what came up in a couple of pages. So I'm just going to read this. It's, it's less than a whole page. Um, as, um, as was said, I'm, uh, as Karen said, I'm a convert, came into the church in 96, um, love daily mass, uh, often, as I call it, you can find me praying and weeping in, in the back of some neighborhood church. But anyway, so this is from a chapter in my St. Therese book, it's called Poverty, Chastity, Obedience. And I say, I wrote, at daily mass, I often had a sense of how dear we women must be to Christ, our fidelity, our capacity to endure. He sees the plodding, steady devotion. I'm, of course, I'm going to start crying. He sees the plodding, steady devotion of the women who come to church all over the world, week in, week out, who prepare the altar, who say the rosary, who pray the novenas, who grip the holy cards, who wear the scapulars, who carry the flame, who wait, and who in a very real way have kept the church going. They have kept the church going without revolt, without complaint, for the sometimes wayward priests who minister to them. They've kept the church going while more liberated folk tell them they are mindless serfs who should rise off rise up and throw off their chains. They have kept the church going so that converts such as me 
can stumble in like the five o'clock workers in the parable of the vineyard and be, quote, saved. They have kept the church going so that the church could produce, as only the church could have produced, Dorothy Day and Blessed Teresa of Calcutta and St. Therese of Lisieux, as well as Archbishop Oscar Romero, Cesar Chavez, and St. Maximilian Kolbe. When St. Paul observed there is no limit to love's forbearance, to its trust, its hope, its power to endure, he must surely have been thinking of women. So, <laughs> women also always have Kleenex. And um, <laughs> I turned to Karen before I came up and said, do you have any Kleenex? Of course. So anyway, that's kind of a long-winded introduction, but it's a way of saying I'm so, it just touches my heart to be, and you know, to sit up here and just look out at the faces, it's so moving. Um, so thank you. And uh, I'm going to start with this. Someone once asked Pope Francis, who I personally love. Anyway, they said to they <laughs> said asked Pope Francis, "Who are you?" And Pope Francis replied, "I'm a sinner." So I love that. That puts everyone at ease. I'm a sinner too. Um, I often introduce myself in front of a mic thing. I'm Heather and I'm an alcoholic, which is another way of saying I'm a sinner. Um, so we can all relax. Um, you don't have to compare yourself to me. Hopefully you can identify with me, not necessarily, you won't have the exact same story, but with the feelings, with the pilgrimage, the things that come up on the journey. Um, I think when people purport to be better or more advanced, more spiritually advanced than us, we start to compare, we're in fear. But when people acknowledge they're the same as us, they're one of us, right? We can breathe, um, we can identify, we can be in solidarity and not in competition, and um, we can love. So, um, so what I'm really gonna do, um, what I was asked to do and what I love to do is really just tell my story. Um, I, I, all my books are, really are telling facets of my story. Um, what it was like, what happened, what it's like now. And my story is um, the story of uh, the prodigal daughter who uh, squandered her inheritance in the mire and came trailing home. And I love in the parable of the prodigal son, it says, the father saw him coming from a long way off. <laughs> Right? And isn't it the truth? Um, he sees us coming probably before we even know we're headed home. But um, anyway, so it's the story of the prodigal daughter, the story of the man born blind. They say to the man, who, who sinned, you or your parents? And Jesus says, neither one. It's to glorify God. And I feel like my alcoholism, family illness, it is an illness. I have it. Most everyone in my family has it. And I feel uh, with almost 30 years of, of sobriety, next Monday, if all goes well, and I don't like go to the, <laughs> if I don't go to the bar of the embassy suites on the way out of here, um, yeah, and it's to, and it is to glorify God. It was I, who can understand it? God's ways are not our ways, but um, that, that's that's all I can say. I've been the recipient of this unmerited gift, and um, and. I think you cooperate with the gift, but the gift is clearly unmerited and doesn't come from you. So it it's, makes for a humble and contrite heart. Um, 
But anyway, so um, just, and I tell this, this story of my childhood in my first book, Parched, which apparently is sold out already. I'm so excited people are buying my books. Um, there's a whole bunch, though, left over there afterward. Um, so I was born and raised in the coast of New Hampshire. Um, big family, eight kids in my family, but we weren't Catholic. We were Protestant, congregational church. I went to Sunday school for eight years. Um, wonderful parents. Parents were not alcoholics. Uh, my father was a bricklayer. My mother was a housewife, blue-collar family, um, decent, hardworking, self-sacrificing. Uh, I had every value. Um, there wasn't violence in our home. Um, there wasn't cursing. There wasn't sort of, it was, there was a level of sort of decency. Um, and we loved to read. We didn't have a lot of money, so we loved books and music. We had a piano. Everybody took music lessons. And we loved nature, because nature was free. And, um, <laughs> and you know, all these years later, that's exactly how I still am. I love literature, I love music, and I love nature. And so I, I give thanks to my parents for instilling me. And my mother, in particular, was um, kind of still waters run deep. I'm a super over-emoter, and my, I'm sure I drove my poor mother crazy. And she was kind of, I once asked my mother if I was pretty, and she said, pretty enough for all practical purposes. <laughs> yeah. That was my mom. And she wasn't cold or mean or anything, but in those days, in the 50s, right, they thought if they complimented you that you'd get a big head or something. So, like, my whole life, I'm just, like, a huge attention junkie. Like, tell me I look up. But anyway, but my mother, but the point is my mother, but she had deep, deep, uh, kind of a contemplative spirit, and she gave that to me. So anyway, I got tons of stuff from my parents, but also my family had lots of alcoholism on both sides of it, and therefore... Both my parents were affected by it. And, and the way I think that comes out is kind of keeping secrets, like anyone who's grown up in a family affected by alcoholism will recognize these characteristics. People keep secrets when there's no reason to keep secrets. There's all kinds of stuff that never, no one ever talked directly to each other in my household. We um, triangulated, except with eight kids. I don't even know what you call that. <laughs> like, they're so, you know, no one ever, we all talked behind each other's backs. No one, it was just very hard. And there was a fear of making a mistake, a fear of breaking something, because if you broke something, that costs money, and we didn't have a lot of money. Fear of getting sick. Um, again, it's kind of stood me in good stead. I mean, we never went to the doctor, and I have a thing <laughs> I have a passage in Parch where I talk about if you got appendicitis, like you'd get a glass of ginger ale, like it was, <laughs> you know, or you'd break your leg and you, like a warm washcloth. I mean, it was like really, it's this Yankee. You guys, we don't have this in Southern California, but it's this real like do without. You know, that's a sign of a good good character. Um, anyway, so um, but the fact is, it wouldn't really matter how how or by whom I was raised because I had the alcoholic, whatever it is, the gene, the predisposition. And, and by the way, I was a straight A student. I was not the kid who was chosen last, last for, the, for the game. I was the captain. Of, I would be the captain of the team, and I won the spelling bee. And so I had all this stuff going for me on the outside. But inside, and whether this is the human condition, the fall, um, sort of writ large, or alcoholism, I don't know. But, it, but though I had really everything ostensibly was fine but inside i just always felt like a total outsider i felt like i didn't belong i felt like 
I hadn't been given the rule book, as you sometimes hear alcoholics say. And, um, and so all, this, all the good stuff on the outside, I felt like I'm going to fail and you're going to find out who I really am and then I won't be loved. This deep sense of God as the kind of high school principal who you better get good marks and keep your distance. Um, and, and the church I went to, um, and I mentioned this because I'm a convert and, and part of the reason I think I was drawn to the church was when I finally came in. There was a big difference between the church I went to as a kid um, and I'm not, I don't want to, you know, polarize or anything, but so this church was, there's just, there wasn't even a stained glass window. It was just super, super austere and the empty cross, of course. And, um, and, I, and I liked Sunday school. Okay. I just thought God was kind of ir irrelevant for people who like had it all together and didn't have problems. And, you know, people who had it all together and just needed a hobby or something. I mean, I didn't, I really did not, I don't know if you, you do as a kid, but, um, you know, I didn't hook up. No, that's what God is for, is for the problems of, is for your heart and your, the problems of your heart and your conflicts and so forth. Um, but anyway, so into that um, came alcohol. When I was a freshman in high school, um, I had my first drink, 13 years old. It just breaks my heart. Like I hadn't even attained my full height. And, um, uh, and I had my first drink, except it was about 10 drinks. And the very first time I drank, this is a huge sign of alcoholism, I um, blacked out, which means you don't, you're walking and talking, but you yourself have no memory of it the next day. Not a good sign. That is not the sign of a social drinker. Um, and I did that the very first time I drank. So, and I had a big personality change, mood change, um, you know, kissed some guy who I didn't know. And, and, got had a horrible hangover and of course got in trouble at home and um but but what alcohol did for me that very first time was give me a fake religious experience religion as we know means to bind back together re ligare same root word as ligament and that's what it made me feel like was happening i there was this window where i loved everybody and i felt like everyone loved me and all my self-consciousness and my sense that i wasn't enough and that i was a fluke and you were going to find out i wasn't enough just disappeared it was anesthetized um and i felt at one with the universe it's what all the saints strive for the mystical or the contemplative saints that sense of mystical union but the problem is it was fake because real union and real connection take work and the will and vulnerability and time and i didn't i was just way too young to know that i and this feeling was so compelling and whatever is in my wiring that's miswired just absolutely fatally glommed onto that feeling and really chased it for the next 20 years so i the next 20 years of my life, my God was really alcohol. Um, horrible, not a good God to have. Uh, and, um, and I really was in its thrall. I mean, alcohol called all the shots, how I spent my money, how I earned my money, who I hung out with. Um, and, and I do think, this is just my opinion, that alcoholism is really a misplaced search for God, for transcendence, for connection. Um, and my drinking was all, I, I, when I was old enough to drink, became a, a really sort of sleazy barroom drinker. And I was, and my drinking was always very tied in with looking for the guy, you know, the one. And so, you know, this search for love that went really badly awry. 
um, you know, like Mary Magdalene, kind of. Um, so that's how it went. I managed to graduate from college. I went to the University of New Hampshire. I got a degree in social service. I had no desire to be a social worker, but I sort of wanted people to think I was holy. I've always had this thing. I was really a Catholic at heart way before I came, became a Catholic. Like, I always wanted people to think that I looked good and was, and was kind, even though I was completely self-obsessed and self-centered. So anyway, got a degree in um, social service. By the way, I supported myself by waitressing my entire, my entire drinking career. And I have such respect for, for real waitresses and, and bartenders. And it is incredibly difficult, multitasking. You've got to have a lovely personality, all kinds of stuff I totally didn't have. I was the worst waitress. But, and I also <laughs> hated it and thought I was too smart. For, so it was just a horrible combination. And that's kind of how I rolled for years and years. I ended up going to law school while, also while I was drinking. Again, no desire to be a lawyer. Really didn't even know what lawyers did. But I'm really good at taking tests. I'm really good at <laughs> multiple choice tests in particular. <laughs> And, um, and really, that is how the, my mind worked in those days. I just thought, I'll taper down on my drinking, because I knew it was a problem, and I'll get a law degree, and then I'll be an ACLU lawyer and help the underdog. We had a deep heart for the underdog in our family, by the way. Blue collar, my father loved, he would, my father was great. He, I'm a crier, my father was a crier, he was a bricklayer, but he would, you know, he had the heart for the little league pitcher with leukemia and the welfare mother, and so, we had like a deep, you know, bleeding heart for the disenfranchised. And so, and I did too, except I was so disenfranchised and so ill myself that I couldn't, I just couldn't. So I graduated from law school, but this is the willpower because I can, I, I just buckled down. And at the end of the semester, I would just sequester myself in the library for 16 straight hours for 10 days in a row and then graduate with honors and pass the Massachusetts bar, except I was a daily, morning barroom drinker by this time. I mean like 7 a.m. I would be at the bar, 33 years of age. So um, that's where my drinking took me, an incomprehensible demoralization and loneliness, loneliness, loneliness beyond anything that, that any human being should have to, I mean, I might as well have been in, um, solitary confinement. Um, I lived in this kind of cockroach-ridden loft in Boston, and you know, was hanging out with these old men who were also alcoholics. Uh, bless them. Um, anyway, so that's, that's where it took me. And, and I mention all that because that is what God had to work with when I came to him. You know, like I wasn't, it wasn't like, oh, here's a promising canvas on which to paint a lovely <laughs> picture. I mean, literally like the prodigal son who ate with the pigs. I mean, just nothing. My scorecard read, and really bad behavior in the bars, by the way. I don't have to go into it, but you can imagine as a single woman and the whole horrible. Um, and what happened was my family had an intervention for me in 1986, actually. And, um, and this was a huge, you know, they sort of ambushed me. That's what an intervention is. And I was very, very put upon, believe me. Um, first of all, because I thought, I'm, I'm the oldest, and I had always thought it was kind of my job to save my family. And I was kind of the star of the family. I was the smart one. 
I was, the, but in fact, I was the drunkest one. And um, out of a family of many of my siblings also have the disease. Anyway, even they came to my intervention and everyone was like, maybe you should slow down a little head. So um, they sent me away to this rehab, turned out to be Hazelden uh, in Minnesota. And, um, and you know, that was where um, my real kind of rebirth began. And this was way before I came to Christ or to the church, but it was where I began to have a dawning belief in in God, in a power greater than myself. For one thing, the obsession to drink that had been on me 24-7, like a scaly, clawed animal, um, was lifted during that time. And you don't have to be a theologian to get something happened to me. I have been the recipient of an insane, unmerited gift. I did nothing to deserve it, number one, and two, it is truly a miracle. If you've ever been under the grip of any kind of compulsion or obsession, you just know there's no rational, logical way this can ever be removed. And it was just gone. I just did not have the desire to drink anymore. Um, and of course, I'm with people who are trying to, they're also trying to get better. And, and we're being led by these, um, the 12 steps is what they gave us at the treatment center. And, and in fact, as I came to see later, uh, it's kind of a deeply Catholic type of um, spirituality it has to do with taking moral inventory, a deep examination of conscience, we would call it, and telling it to another human being and making amends. We're making things whole where we've hurt people and developing a prayer life and, and learning to serve others. And uh, so that was a deep attraction to me without putting any kind of religious um, gloss on it at all. And, uh, and I fell in with this incredible fellowship of, uh, of fellow recovering alcoholics and, and addicts that has uh, saved my life and, and led me at first to this power greater than myself. And really out of sheer gratitude, I think one of the deepest spiritual principles in the world is gratitude. I mean, when you're grateful, you're not feeling sorry for yourself. When you're grateful, you're not gossiping about your neighbor. When you're grateful, um, you're not judgy. Um, there's something that is so beautifully right-sized and expansive about gratitude. And um, so that's, I've just never gotten over the, the crazy gratitude of just not having to wake up with a hangover. But that was how I first came to God. And also through nature, even at this, treatment center, I remember I had this seminal moment where I came across this blue heron in the woods and just kind of through the mist in the morning, the beauty of it and just kind of standing stock still. And I, I had this moment, it was such a God moment, but I was able to put the word God to it. I saw, oh, this feeling, this feeling in my heart of rejoicing, of of mystery, oh, that maybe that's God. In other words, for a lot of us who didn't grow up Catholic or maybe even with a deep belief in God, I mean, you, um, the hearsay of the culture, oh, only stupid people believe in God, you believe in an old man in the sky with a beard and all that stuff. Not that I especially subscribe to that, but it was more like I saw, oh, this is interesting and an adventure and something life-giving and enriching. So anyway, that's, that's how my belief in God started, and I, and I went on and I, 
Um, I got so I went back to Boston. Um, I got married to kind of the boy next door um, very soon after, and I thought that was a great idea because I'd been super. I'm super obsessive, and I tend to get you know like crushes, except they're not really crushes. They're kind of like taking hostage situation. That's a whole. <laughs> That's a subject I could talk on for many hours, but we won't do that. But um, so I thought, oh, this is, this is, I really got, I want to be married. This is before I became a Catholic. I totally understood that marriage is a sacrament. I just knew it in my heart. You take a vow and the vow is for life. And I was super serious about it. We both were, but we got married by a justice of the peace. We had lived together before. Um, and he's a great guy. We're still friends. But, um, you know, I had not even begun to look at the baggage that I had from all those years in the bars and from my childhood. And so, um, but we, we stayed married for 14 years. We got, we got married out um, in Nantucket, moved to L.A., passed the bar, California bar. This was the early 90s. And I start, so I'm still married, kind of newly married, fairly newly sober. And I get this job. Um, as a lawyer, finally, I'm sort of, I've become an adult at the age of about 39. Um, it was the first real job I'd ever had, and I got this job working as a lawyer in Beverly Hills. And um, so everything on paper, you know, on paper, I had achieved the American dream, kind of, the property, power, prestige, even though I never had, I still have never owned my own home. I mean, I've never had a lot of money, but I was making money then for the first time in my life. And, and so the point is, I had this kind of life that looked good from the outside, and that our culture tells us this is what you do. You use your intelligence backed by willpower and your drive. I have lots of drive. I have lots of intelligence. You use that and you get and you elbow people aside and you get what you want and you look good and you're respected and and then you work at this job, which I began to see. I hated though, which was a big problem. You know, like work at this job for 40 years that you're not really crazy about and then die and then retire. I don't know. I just I. I wasn't cut out to be a lawyer, is the point, and I realized that. Um, and it was a huge crisis, spiritual crisis, because I liked making money. Finally, I had a huge student loan that I was paying off. Um, I was making way more money than my husband, so I'm contributing to the household. Um, plus, I don't want to be a quitter. You know, I finally, you and your pipe dream, and look at you, you've been in a bar stool all your life, and look, typical, now you've got to good job and you don't like it and really berating myself and thinking I want to do what God I want to do God's will but but I made the mistake I think that we often do of thinking God wants us to do the grim hard thing to build our character you know I thought that's I guess since I have a law degree that's what God must want me to do but my heart told me different and that was when I really began sincerely praying and I began having a strange urge to worship and to go to churches on Sunday. And then I began to see, oh, there's churches that are open during the day if you're, as you're wandering around LA. And they're, oh, they're Catholic churches, most of and, um And I'm reading and I'm praying. The real thing was, though, I took my childhood Bible. I'd been baptized when I was 10. And, um, and I somehow had carried that Bible around, interestingly. All those years when I thought I didn't believe in God, all the drinking years, the dark years, I still had the Bible. And, um, and I brought it with me to work 
in that office in Beverly Hills, 9107 Wilshire Boulevard, and on the sixth floor, and I began to read the Gospels. Just cold, no commentary, no, I knew no Catholic, I knew no one who went, I mean, I'm like a liberal, 60s Democrat type, you know, those are my friends. All my friends who were raised, like went to CCD and stuff, hated the church, hated the church. So, um, but I just read the Gospels and I'm always so moved by all the passages about, um, and we, and, and Father had a thing about the shepherd, you know, and really my sheep know me and, you know, my sheep know my voice and, um, somehow I was just inexorably led. I look back and even I am amazed. I don't know how, but it was just this single-minded, oh, I met the Christ of the Gospels and I was just absolutely intrigued by this astonishing figure who is so alive today and, and all the parables I saw work, being worked out in my daily life and the living, I just saw, oh, this is the blueprint. This is the only way you can live in integrity. And he's saying, store up your treasure in heaven. You know, I'm terrified about money. Store up your treasure in heaven where moths can't devour and rust can't. I mean, every objection I had to quitting my job, because, by the way, what was really going on was this deep call of my heart to write that I'd had since I was like a kid of six. And I thought for sure I had killed that, um, sort of killed that dream with my drinking. And like I said, I was no spring chicken. I mean, I was probably in my early 40s by this time. And I just thought, oh, please, I'm going to give up this money and my benefits and, um, and my, oh my God, my parents were so happy that I finally had a job and was, and was using the degree that they had helped pay for, you know, and all of that stuff that we go through not wanting to disappoint. No one knew better than Christ who left his own mother on the way back from Jerusalem. And there's a, he was not codependent with his mother, Christ, who adored his mother, treasured, crowned his mother queen of heaven and earth, but he knew he had to be about his father's business. And those are the choices that we have to make sometimes. And I so didn't want to disappoint my parents. Um, but I also knew my parents loved me enough to want me to be happy, you know, to really fulfill the deepest desire of my heart. So anyway, the, my conversion, my coming into the church and my quitting my job as a lawyer and becoming a writer happened um, not exactly simultaneous, but, but very close to one another. And, um, and it really came um, through prayer, through realizing that, um, you know, the spiritual journey is not about becoming spiritually excellent or spiritually flawless or uh, spiritually impervious to further suffering. It has to do with coming fully awake. And I in my prayer, I saw if I did not at least try to follow this call of my heart to write that I'd had since I was six, that would be the biggest sin, as in missing of the mark, of my entire life. And if you knew my life in the bars, you'd know that is saying something. I mean, I had lots of um, very unsavory stuff, but to, but to say no, it would be like Mary saying no to the angel Gabriel. I mean, you could say no. She had the freedom to say no, but it would just be 
look look at what might have been and it, so it was that that i mean that to me is is the real heart of of spirituality am i going to have the the courage or it's not even courage it's just am i going to allow god to walk with me and take this what for me was a huge leap i'm very very afraid of money running out you know i came from a family where there was a lot of financial fear and insecurity bricklayer with eight kids um but somehow, um, again, and it's why it just cemented my absolute belief that Christ is who he said he was because I somehow was able to quit that job as a lawyer and, um, and I immediately found freelance work that supported me and I began uh, this life of writing, this very precarious life. I mean, if you live in LA, as I do, and you say you're a writer, people assume you're a TV writer or you're a film writer. And I knew, no, I'm going to write essays about my mother and my, which in fact, the very first thing I ever had published was an essay about my mother. I mean, I knew I was going to be the kind of writer that probably was not, didn't make giant amounts of money. Um, but that was okay, and it was okay if I failed, and it was okay if I never had anything published, but I had to at least try it. So, quit the job, came into the church very soon after, and, um, and that was, um, as I said, I'd started going around to churches, and I tell, you know, the story of my, my drinking and kind of the rehab is, um, in my first book, Parched. My second book, Redeemed, is about what I'm talking about now, my conversion, and uh, as I'm working as a Beverly Hills lawyer. But anyway, I'd gone around to every, every Protestant church. I went to the Unitarian Church. I went to the Episcopal Church. And there was only, and I just kept thinking, nah, something's missing. Something, there is, literally, I thought there is some meat missing. I mean, little did I know how apt that was. Um, and I finally went, there was only one place left, and I went to a noon mass. At, it was my first mass ever, St. Basil's in Koreatown, LA, um, you know, and just went as a worshiper, like trembling. I really thought they're gonna totally know. I don't know how to follow along. They're gonna know, they're gonna kick me out. I'm gonna do something wrong. Um, you know, the whole, I mean, if you're not, a, you're like, oh, what is the genuflect? Do you do, does everyone, is that, you know, do only holy people get to do that? What? I just didn't, but the thing I heard in that mass, first of all, I saw the body on the cross. You know, it's not like I'd never seen a body in a cross before, but I saw it in a way that was just like his heart to mine, you know, his, his blood to mine, his bones to mine. And, um, and I heard, Lord, I'm not worthy to receive you. You know, only back then we said, only say the word and my soul shall be healed. And, uh, and I just, without, again, with no theology, I just absolutely knew, oh, this is the place I've been looking for my entire life. And I've never, from that day, looked back. You know, I just absolutely, oh, what do you do if you're a grown-up? Oh, you go to RCIA. Okay. You know, found one, Yellow Pages, Church of the Blessed Sacraments. That's how long ago it was. Yeah. Sunset Boulevard. Father Jim Rude took me through. I was the only student or whatever you call it for a while. And then... You know, and I came into the church in August. Don't even ask. It was weird. I didn't come in at Easter. But anyway, it all, it all, you know, I was just led, like I said, like a little lost, like bleeding, you know, sort of imbecile child lamb. And um, so that was great. And those, so then I had my three homes, my sobriety, my writing, and the church. And those have continued to be my three homes. And then I had... 
But as we know, you convert, you come into the church, and that's the beginning of the journey, not the end, right? So, um, you know, I just continue to learn that, uh, you know, that the spiritual path has to do with becoming childlike. All those parables in the gospel, unless you become like a little child, uh, vulnerable, uh, I mean, teachable, constantly. I think we all just want to reach that point where can I just not look like a complete fool all the time? And, um, you know, I sort of never gotten there, but, um, but that's okay. Blessed are the poor in spirit. I mean, the gospels are so countercultural. They're so radical because, you know, we're so about, oh, let me get a million Instagram followers. And even in the church, we kind of tend to be, can be focused on numbers and how, and how many people have I saved and all this stuff. And that's not been my experience. My experience is always some loan, just when I want to totally give up and I'm making no money and no one's buying my books and no, you know, I get this email from someone. I got this email the other day. This woman, she sent me 20 bucks. Thank you so much. And she said, you make me feel less alone. Right? And I was like, thank you. I am doing my job. You know, I've done my, if that's the only thing I did in my life, made one person feel less alone. Thank you. You know, and that's how my, um, my vocation works. Very hidden, uh, beautifully hidden, um, humble way. And I think this is um, such good news for all of us. I mean, I'm not a mother, but what could be more hidden or humble than being a mother? My, I mean, it just blows me away that people, women the world over, just dedicate. I mean, how many diapers do you have to change in this? I mean, with no complaint and not asking for a halo. I just, it just, so, um, and, and we have, so in other words, we have our models set up for us, Christ and his mother, uh, very hidden, hidden and humble. Um, so, and, and so some of my adventures continue to be, uh, you know, I, I worked really, really hard, didn't get anything published hardly for about 10 years, by the way, and just would go to my desk every day and write for four hours, put that discipline and that drive that I do have to work and, um, and just trudge to mass and pray and continue to stay sober and help another alcoholic. And, uh, and, you know, finally I got my first book published and then I got an agent and, um, and so, and then Although all the stuff that I've applied for and angled for in my life as a writer, I've completely been rejected for. But then these other weird things come out completely out of the blue. Like Magnificat, I write for Magnificat, I have for many years, was this totally random dear woman, Rita Simmons, poet who also writes for Magnificat, invited me to New York to have this give a talk. And she, unbeknownst to me, sent one of my books to Father Peter Cameron, who's the editor-in-chief. And he emailed me out of the emailed out of the blue. Oh, would you like to write for Magnet? So that's how that came about. And that's been a huge thing, simply because it's probably how most people know me and has gotten me speaking gigs and stuff, which basically support me. <laughs> Thank you very much. So just if you'd like to know how I pay for that one bedroom apartment in Pasadena, that's how. <laughs> um, but way more that yeah. And so the books and then. And I want to talk, I don't want to forget to talk about what is truly the joy of my, um, tell me how much longer I have. Keep going. Okay. But like, ha till 1230? Yes. Okay. Um, okay. And then this is another huge joy of my life. I, now, I'm a huge, oh, I should say, 
around 2000, I got um, breast cancer. I, was, I say like everything that's ever happened to me, I've written a book about. So eight things have happened to me and I've written a book about all of them. One of them is cancer. Um, so that was a whole thing and I was super, super lucky. I, it turned out to be stage one, grade one breast cancer. And, but I had this deep, deep prayer and I ended up going against medical advice and was not treated except surgically. And, still alive all these years later, so that's a beautiful thing. And, and it wasn't, oh, I thought, you know, it's either medicine or Jesus. It wasn't that at all. It was, um, anyway, I described that in my book, uh, Stripped uh, is the name of that book. And, but one of the things that came out of that was because I did, I did it, when you hear the word cancer, you just instantly think you're going to die. And I really, it was a brush with mortality, at least in an existential sense. And, and out of that experience, um, my marriage came to an end. So that was, uh, you know, and it was, I was the one who really pushed for it to end. But um, I had converted during the course of the marriage. My husband did not and was not remotely interested. Um, and I think even more to the point, I began to realize that my, I am the type of person that can only have one vocation, not two, and to be a wife is a vocation. And um, and I realized that my writing, it just brings to bear everything that I have physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually. And so the marriage ended, and that was a really, uh, even if you, as anyone who's been divorced knows, even if you know, and I agonized about it, of course, I'm Catholic now, went to, got spiritual guidance, eventually had the marriage annulled. But the deep, deep, it's a wound, it's a deep uh, tear. Um, you know, tear to the community. And of course a huge, you know, and a sense of failure and a deep sense of, oh, am I even capable of love? And am, am, am I so wounded that I can't be, all, all those questions that we all, I think, I don't know about you, but I ask myself. Um, so that was hard, but it was part of the journey. And then of course in the hills of that, I haven't written a book about this, and maybe I never will, but just just FYI, horribly cataclysmic, excruciating, fell in love with the guy who was completely unavailable. <laughs> and, and just, and I mean like fell in love, like I have never, ever. So that was another shattering thing that has been a, a big part of my journey. So when, in other words, that's what it looks like to be um, a human being, right? And, um, and so if you have any little parts of those things, like join the club or, you know, be my friend or something. Um, you know, and I found the church was the place to comfort me, to sustain me, you know, within which to work out all those wounds, all that pain, all that bewilderment. And I just always, always have... It's why I love the church so much. If you're single, you know, um, it's a big, I mean, you just, such a sense of there's a place for me there. You know, there's a seat for me. Um, and, and you often feel, you know, at Sundays, everyone's there with their family, and like you'll turn around at the kiss of peace, and like they're all like hugging each other. And on this. I mean, people can sort of shun you if you're, it, it's weird. But, but I, the only reason I mention that is because of my, the mystical body tells us, it's why I so believe that the, in the church's teachings on sex, they're the, the, only the church gives 
everyone a place at the table. As a single celibate woman way past childbearing age, I have a place at the table. I lay down my life for other people's families. Do you know, I'm at mass for the whole human family and I, the culture will marginalize me. And, and maybe in a kind of you know, social, logistical sense, not everyone gives you a giant, but tons of people do give you a giant hug. And the, and the point is, that this that sense that our chastity that we can literally lay down our bodies and our blood for our fellows in that mystical sense and that it serves my fidelity to the teachings of the church on sex and everything else serves to heal the whole human family it's deep deep gives me a sense of purpose gives me makes me know how vital it is important that i go um you know that i'm a member uh but anyway, so, okay, so the books and the, and the annulment and the horrible unrequited love. And then the, but there's always some giant gift in the middle of it. And so one of the things that has happened is um, my archdiocesan newspaper that used to be called The Tidings for years and is now called Angelus. Um, now this, again, talk about, oh, I also did a gig, I also had a thing on All Things Considered on NPR for a while, which was, I got to write and record, go to the studio and record these little slice of life stories, many of which actually weirdly had a, a Catholic, uh, which is strange for NPR because they're not exactly, um, you know, bless, I mean, they're not, like who in the culture is like pro-Catholic, no one. So anyway, but they let me do my thing. And that was, that was something that also came out of the blue. But anyway, so one day I get this email, this is a deal with me. It's like a huge part of my life. People email me. My email is widely available to anybody. And um, so we hear from people all over. So anyway, one day I get this email. This guy sounds like a cub reporter, young guy, like this lingo that was kind of like young, you know. I thought, oh, how cute. And he said, hey, I'm with the tidings. Uh, I'm new in town. Hey, you want to love your stuff in Magnificat? You want to grab lunch someday? Or maybe we could uh, crash mass or something like that. <laughs> I thought. Sweet, here's like this little 18-year-old like guy who's like, you know, getting advertising for the Times or something. And I will have lunch with anyone. He said I'll treat, so that's, you know, like I'm there, dude. So I go, oh sure. So I go and meet him and it's like this just lovely young man, but he's like young, you know. Well, of course at my age everybody looks young, but so we you know, we're doing it and we're shooting and you know, just talking about this and that and oh, how do you like LA? He'd come here from Phoenix and oh, have you tried this and da 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 and you know, kind of telling me about town and this church and that church and well, we had gone to mass together, by the way, down with the archdiocese and um, so finally I go, I've got like mayonnaise dripping off of my mouth from my hamburger and I go, so what do you do there anyway at the tidings? And he goes, um, I'm editor in chief. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, and then he proceeds to say, would you write a weekly arts and culture column for us? And, you know, arts, culture, faith, and life. And I'm telling you, I know, I had the same reaction. My heart, it was like someone was asking me to marry them because <laughs> I realized my whole life, which, by the way, consists of a lot of, like, solitary walks and taking weird like, I don't take any pictures of people. I take close-up pictures of, like, the jacaranda and the, you know, the, like, random leave on the sidewalk. And the, I love close-up stuff or, like, 18 pictures of the same sycamore tree, that kind of thing. So 
my whole life had prepared me. And I said, you know what I mean? I, every single thing I had experienced, I was, and also to serve, you know, the archdiocese. That, um, <laughs> I don't know why this is so meaningful to me. You know, it's like, it's like my version of washing the altar cloths, you know, <laughs> or of lighting the candles. And, um, and so I said, oh, yes. And so we've become great friends. He is the greatest editor, J.D. Long Garcia. He is a wonderful man. He's really changed the whole look and feel of the magazine. And then he gives me a chance. I get two. He gives like a beautiful photograph. And so this is how, okay, and I just want to talk at the end. This is how I know I'm doing my job. Like these random, um, Okay, I was at mass the other day. I went to this noon mass at St. Philip's in Pasadena. Um, do you know it? Or you guys go, oh, okay, yeah, okay. So I'm there, and this woman, Micheline, her name is, maybe you know her. Anyway, I'm just like, you know, so a beautiful mass, I'd leave, and this woman stops me, and she goes, aren't you Heather? And I go, yes. Um, although one time this priest did that in the confessional, and it was really awful. <laughs> They see my picture, right? <laughs> it's like, whoops. <laughs> but anyway, she goes, aren't you Heather and you write for Angelus and I love your stuff. And I was like, oh yes, thank you. It was so sweet. And then she goes, she goes, I have four children and three of them, only one of them goes to mass. You know, these lovely women, it's just what I'm saying. She's like in her seventies, she trudges to mass. She goes, I just worry about the three who don't go so much. And she goes, do you think you, Jesus isn't mad at, Jesus loves them, right? And I was like, oh, you bet he does. And I was like, I went back to my car and I was like, I am doing my job. You know what I mean? It's like so not, here's a million dollars. It's like here you get to comfort this fellow, uh, you know, woman who goes to mass. I hear from people, the emails that I get, you guys, I mean, this one woman, I think she's from Texas, talked about, had been molested by her father her whole childhood, wanted to tell me this story. She nursed him through his last years. She nursed him through Alzheimer's. And in the process, she said, I forgave him. I mean, this is the kind of stuff that comes through my mail. And it's because of the way that I write and I speak that I think people feel safe, you know, to come to me. Um, Oh gosh, now I have this brother, Michael. He lives in some godforsaken place in West Africa. And, and he's a total alcoholic. Okay, no, it's not, no, it's like, no, but he's getting, he's gone to rehab. I just laugh because it's like all the broken people. My friend, Father Terry, whose relative is here. My friend, Father Terry, I once said to him, Terry, how do you, Father Terry, how do I know that I'm making spiritual progress? And he said, if crazy people aren't afraid to come up and talk to you, <laughs> that's a really good sign. So I'm like, trust me, I'm doing real good. But anyway. So this guy, you know, but he likes my staff, and so he writes to me, and he's trying to get sober, and he sends me pictures and stuff. So, you know, I get to write, like, a few lines to Brother Robert, and, hey, with you, walking with you, um, you know, there is a solution. And, and, um, and this is, uh, oh, gosh, okay, this is another person who's come across. And I say this partly, I mean, clearly, 
I've also written a book about, long essay, about healing from abortion, and that is a part of my story, too, that's probably my deepest uh, wound. And um, so I find a lot of people come to me, weirdly, who have some kind of emotional, sexual wounds, and, um, and that gives me comfort, too. But anyway, so a few months ago, I get an email through Facebook from this mother of... Hi, I'm the mother of so-and-so. He's an inmate at so-and-so prison in Ohio. The guy was, and, and we're poor, she and her husband, and can you write to him? He would love to hear from you and maybe send him some books. We're on Social Security. The guy was a high school, uh, no, junior high school Catholic girls teacher and exchanged some photos, apparently. I don't know the exact. 35 years he's serving in prison, and can you write to him? And can you send him some books, right? So, right? And everything in you, it's just, oh, gosh, I have so much on my plate, and, and, and the whole thing, and do I want to get involved, and my God, he's in there for 35 years, do I have to write to him? That's where my mind, I mean, it's like, that's a long time to write. I always go to like, what's it gonna cost? But, but the, and then I thought that, you know, I thought of all the things I have done that I didn't, that I should have in the, in the court of like, of ethical, moral love, I should have been, I should be serving life in prison for. And that, do you know, and that, I w and that I was lucky enough, there but for the grace of God go I, I thought that guy is serving time for all of, all of us, because we're all sinners, right? And so I said, oh, of course, I'll write to your son. And so now we have a nice correspondence, and I send him books, and um, he teaches the inmates creative writing. So this is, and that is my life, it is full of stuff like that. I mean, I will go home after being away for a day and a half. It's not like there'll be a million emails, but there'll be three or four emails from people who want something or want to share something or want to give me something. That's the other thing. What's your address? I have something I want to send you. So people send me books and notes. And so that is it. That is the mystical, it is the mystical body. It is the life of the Eucharist that is the kingdom of God is like yeast all through the loaf and and it's my particular little niche it's such a weird i don't even know what you call what i do because it's it's partly writing but it's everything that flows from that that i feel such a deep responsibility to and for and also receive so much love from and and it's a total mystery and i can't control it or manage it it's always a surprise um, I've got some nice travel plan, and but I have some nice travel this summer, and 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 so I meet all these weird. I'm going. I'm going to go to my nephew's high school graduation up in Livermore, and then the way I'm going to stop in Monterey to see Father Pat Dooling, my good pal from there, and he takes me to breakfast at this that cliff place up in the hill, and but we'll just gab about books and the gospels, and um, and oh, yeah, I could go on and on. The the incredible people, so. And now you all are part of that commun living communion of saints. I want to thank you so, so much for listening to me and having me. And God bless us, women, all, and men. Thank you. <laughs>
Thanks so much for listening to this Magnificat podcast. Have you been touched by our time together? If so, for more information or to find a Magnificat chapter near you, go to our website at magnificat-ministry.org or visit us on social media. We would love to hear from you. You can also email us at magnificatcst at aol.com or call 504-828-MARY, M-A-R-Y. Until the next time, may God bless you.